Welcome to Far and Beyond Oregon True Crime, where we talk about bizarre, strange, and crazy Oregon true crime. I'm Stacy, And I'm Valerie. And today we are going to be talking about the Pandora Box murder. This is the story of James and Fern Bowden and how destructive the Pandora's box can be. You know what the Pandora's box is, right? Not really. I was actually kind of wondering about that. (laughs) I didn't know how to ask it, but... (laughs) So in Greek mythology, there was a box that Pandora gave to somebody whose name I don't know because I did not research it. I'm just remembering from college. (laughs) And inside it held all of humanity's woes, all the bad things, all the suffering, all of the pain... And she told the person to protect the box. Don't ever open it, because if you open it, the suffering of mankind will come out. And, of course, the person opened it, and that's why we have war and famine and all this pain and suffering, because one person opened a box. Mm -hmm. They only let out a little bit, but it was enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's basically a box of, of destruction and evil and pain. So at the time of our story, James and Fern Bowden lived in Portland, Oregon with their two daughters. What were the daughters' names? Their names were Doris and Shirley. James Wesley Bowden was born December 12, 1897 in Jordan Valley, Oregon. Jordan Valley is located in eastern Oregon and it is like right smack on the Oregon-Idaho border. I think it's like in both states. It's like that close. That reminds me of like those uh, tater tots, the Ordo... (laughs) 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 I don't know if they have those all over the country, but they sure have them here. (laughs) Now I want tater tots. (laughs) Yeah, there's one thing to know about Valerie is she loves her tater tots. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's about 155 miles from Baker City, and it was actually named for Michael Jordan, but not that Michael Jordan. Yeah, because it was back then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it would be awesome if it was named for him, but he wasn't even born yet. It was actually named for a a prospector named Michael Jordan. That's crazy that it's the same name, though. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, Michael Jordan? Really? Did they change the name? No, no. (laughs) Just some old dusty dude looking for gold. (laughs) His father was James Heron Borden, and his mother was Minnie Esther Smart. That's he, a cool name, Minnie. Like Minnie Mouse. Yes. <laughs> it was a popular one back then, too. There's a lot of Minis, you know, really? Minnie Pearl, Minnie. Yeah. He had seven brothers and sisters. Could you imagine? Mm, that's a lot to put up with. <laughs> <laughs> we have two, a brother and a sister on top of uh-huh. us, and that's already enough for but me. Dad has like eight siblings, so he could probably relate. Yes. <laughs> but I feel like you had to have that many kids back then just to help out with everything that you had to get done. Uh-huh. You you were you were raising an army basically to help yourself. <laughs> yeah, let's hope one of them makes enough money to take care of. <laughs> exactly. Or they can one of them knows enough to take over the farm when we're dying and dead. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I couldn't find much on James's early years other than he spent most of them in the Jordan Valley. But in March of 1918, James served and fought in World War I in the 1st Infantry 41st Company of the 166th DOB, Department of Brigades. When did he do that? That was in uh, March of 1918, just after he turned 21. 
because back then you could not join the army until you were 21. That's weird, because we have it 18 now. Yeah, it's 18 now, but back then they had it older. I don't know why. I couldn't find anything on why they changed it, other than they needed more bodies in World War II. Mm-hmm. But um, he was actually discharged, though, um, less than a year later in December 1918. Mm-hmm. Because, so he didn't serve very long at all. No. But it wasn't his fault. It's because the war ended in November. So he really, (laughs) he couldn't get in there in time to help out long. So no fault of his own. He received the World War I Victory Medal, which it looks like everybody that served received that. But, I mean, he still served, yes. Um, He was a private, I think was his rank. Is that the lowest rank? I, I'm horrible at military rank, and now they're like E something and E E5, E4, and I have no idea. Back then it probably was, though. I think Il Private was um, was one of the lower ranks, yeah. Uh, so his wife, Fern Marie Chandler, was born in November 12th, 1899 in Walla Walla, Washington, which is located in eastern Oregon near the Oregon border. Do you know the age difference between those two? Uh, it looks like it's about three years, if my dates are correct on Fern. That's not bad. Fern was a little harder to track down, so I'm hoping that that's the correct date for her. That was kind of the what I what I kept finding. So, um, her father was Aja Hamilton Chandler. How do you spell that? A S A. That's weird. <laughs> Either Aja or Aza. Or I I have no idea if I'm saying it wrong. If someone knows how to say it. Great. I. Don't. That's an interesting name. <laughs> There's not enough letters there for me to figure out how to say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, her mother was Mabel Uni- Mabel Eunice Briggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had two siblings, so she was a little bit opposite of James. She had a, a lot, lot smaller of a family. Uh, her family seemed to move around quite a bit, though. Um, by, ni- by the 1900s, Fern and her family had moved into Oregon to Umatilla, which was just about an hour southwest of where they were living before. Mm-hmm. And it and by 8, 1918, they had moved again further southeast to Baker City. So they're just going further south. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they're just kind of going south, 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 just moving south for the winter. I don't know. <laughs> um, Fern graduated from Baker High School in 1918, completing a course called a commercial course, which was like a general studies. Is that in college, you said? No, in high school. Mm. So their high school had different courses. That's weird. <clears throat> so is that what her diploma said? Is I, That's what her, her yearbook said. She completed a commercial course. <laughs> and so I kind of looked up what that meant. It, it just means like a general study. She, she completed high school, basically. Um, there were some people that did uh, other things. And it would say that they, you know, completed uh, basic, basic some law, I think was one of them. And so they kind of geared their coursework towards what they were going to do in college. That's so, nice. And because she was a woman, she really... Mm-hmm. You're just going to do the basic, is what they <laughs> told her. <laughs> and usually it led to, like, clerical jobs and stuff like that. Secretaries. The things that they thought women were capable of then. Yeah. Uh, sometime between 1918 and 1927, Fern and James met, and decided to get married. They, In that order is what I'm assuming... They could have met, married, and then courted. But I'm given the time, I don't think that's how it worked. <laughs> uh, they were married on November 7th, 1927, in Baker City. 
So, so that's where Fern lived? That's where Fern time? lived. And uh, James lived further south. But for some reason, he was in Baker City at that time. I don't know why. I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's because he got back from the war and went up there. Because the war ended in 1918, and I don't have any record of him between then and 1927. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. They moved to Portland sometime between 1940 and 1942. On June 1st, 1941, James's father passed away. He was found by friends, and he had been thrown from his horse and kicked to death. They ever find the horse? <laughs> <laughs> I, you, they didn't say. I, I, I assume the horse was just kind of wandering around, and that's how they know he was kicked to death, because the horse had his bloody hooves all over. That sounds very suspicious. <laughs> like, there could be another true crime story right there. <laughs> I know. I'm like, who found him? How long after did they find him? Are they sure the horse kicked him to death and someone didn't take a stick and bludgeon him to death? Yeah. I mean, what about these friends? I know, these supposed the friends. friends. <laughs> I do know that between this time and when James left, his father and mother had divorced. So James was living alone, I'm assuming. I didn't see where he had remarried or anything like that. He was 70 years old when he passed away. His father? Yes. That's pretty old. Yeah. Well, I guess being kicked by a horse, that makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> He was a young guy, I feel like. Yeah, I'm That's... assuming that he was thrown off and then the horse trampled him. Why the horse had a grudge yeah. against him. That's a strange way to die, though. Yeah, it sounds like the horse was very, very angry with him. <laughs> um, on December 2nd, 1942, Fern got a job working as a clerk for the Northern Rail- Railway Company. That's good. She worked there until January 6, 1943, so about a month and four days. Was James away while she was working? Um, I would think so, because this is kind of the time during World War II, and uh-huh. he was off somewhere else, unless he had come back at that time. It's kind of sketchy where he was during what times, because I don't have exact dates on, on uh, when he came home and when he left. Yeah. I just know he did serve in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, she was described as 5'6", 170 pounds, with gray hair and blue eyes. And I thought it was really odd that they had her, like, body type on there. Description on the resume. I know. <laughs> it's like she's working for Hooters. She's a size D cup, and, you know, she, she's got blonde hair, blue eyes. She's great, perfect, you know. <laughs> and very descriptive. Yeah, so I'm like, this is, she's going to be a clerk. Does yeah. it really matter what she looks like? Getting a job based on how you look. <laughs> Gray hair, no thank you. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why she only left in a month. I'm sorry, yeah. you didn't dye your hair. You can't have an old lady sitting here. <laughs> she wasn't that old, though. She was like 35, right? Yeah, she was in her 30s or 40s when she worked there, yeah. yeah. Wasn't very old at all. Uh, James was in Alaska during this time. So I assumed he was in Alaska at this time during World War II, which was from 1939 to 1945, so somewhere in those time spans, mm-hmm. he was in Alaska. Uh, he worked as a civilian Altuan defense worker, which is likely part of the Alaskan ter- Territorial Guard. Mm-hmm. And they were the guard up in Alaska. They were men that were either too old to serve in the Army or too young to serve in the Army. <clears throat> and they went up to Alaska to kind of fortify it against an attack from the Japanese because they didn't want them to attack up there like they had in Pearl Harbor. So they were kind of protecting the borders. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what they did because <clears throat> they couldn't go to the front lines. Yeah. So they just, uh, they had rifles and sharpshooters and 
that kind of stuff that they would just kind of guard and make sure no one was coming and Mm -hmm. taking advantage of that. During his time serving, James sent home money totaling around $5,000. That's a lot. Back then, yeah. Back then. Yeah, back then it was quite a bit. How much is that today? Um, I don't know. I didn't calculate that. (laughs) (laughs) I do know $100 calculate that to about $1,400. So times that by 50 was that per, you say per week or per month? But it just says he, he, the total he sent home was around $5,000. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Speculation was that um, upon returning home, well, it's not quite all speculation because he did state this in some of his statements. <laughs> um, he didn't know how Fern spent all the money or but most of the money. Of money. Yeah. And according to Bowden, she either squandered it or embezzled it or. She spent it on the men she was supposedly stepping out with because he accused her of also mm-hmm. being a cheater. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot to say about what Fern did while he was gone, and I don't know if half of it is true or it's just his mm-hmm. paranoia. But yeah, he was very. Um, he was gone for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and I guess maybe he was lonely, so he thought she was lonely, and she had a little more. I mean, up in Alaska, you're not going to find much. It's yeah. Just, <laughs> an Eskimo here or there. Mm-hmm. At the time, at least. And any rumors he hears from his neighbor, he's going to believe them first. Because he hasn't been around. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, there's this guy at your house. He <laughs> said he was an electrician. But, you know, I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, there's rumors, man. They get you every time. <clears throat> yeah, your sink faucet seems to be breaking down a lot. <laughs> She dropped her ring down the drain again. I think it's a sign, hon. (laughs) So, after he came back and he was accusing Fern of stealing his money and stepping out with other men, he came up with a plan in which he would take revenge upon one of the men he supposed Fern was stepping out with. But we'll talk about that more later. Okay. On June 20th, 1946, Fern kind of put a kibosh on his plans when she filed for divorce, claiming that James was cruel and she demanded $100 a month on child support, which this is when I calculated with inflation, that's about mm-hmm. $1,400 a month mm-hmm. today. That's a lot. Yeah. They were, living in, were they living in Portland at this time? Yeah, they were in Portland, so it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. I'm sure it was still expensive back then. <laughs> <laughs> and James filed an answer denying all the claims of cruelty and all of this, so... Yeah. Of course, it was not an amicable divorce. It doesn't make a lot of sense that he'd come back and be so cruel and controlling unless he was paranoid that she was cheating. Yeah, there's paranoia there. I'm wondering if there's drug use or something. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going on. Um, on July 13th in 1946, reports state that James moved out, but when he did, he left something behind. And this is described as several different things. It's described as a box, a suitcase, a footlocker, or a chest. So, keep that in mind. On the evening of Saturday, July 27th, his daughter Doris, 13, and daughter Shirley, 17, went to a friend's house for the evening. Fern's curiosity about the item left behind finally got the better of her. James had left it in the basement and left instructions for his family not to touch it, which, of course, means, I'm going to touch that. <laughs> so it's just an ominous box full of, they don't know what is in yes. there. Yes. And the, later on, 
police say that James also told her, hey, I have a dire in here that marks all of your movements that I've been watching you. That's creepy. But don't touch this. <laughs> don't read it. I would want to And don't touch open it. the box. <laughs> I'd be like, it's a good thing we're getting a divorce then. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, there's maybe some juicy stuff in there that'll help me get more money. I'm going to go look at that. <laughs> Shortly after she descended the stairs to the basement, an explosion rang out, blowing out windows, dislodging radiators, destroying household effects, and ending the life of 44-year-old Fern Bone. Upon arrival, police found bits of wire and metal embedded in the rafters, so it didn't destroy the house, just the basement. And pieces of remains that were later determined to be human and ferns. Was the basement part of the house? Like, you just walked down to the basement, or was it a whole separate thing? Um, I'm not sure. It looks like you could enter from outside or inside. It looks like it, there was a main entrance downstairs where you had a big door you could go into. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if there was an entrance inside. You would think there would be somewhat of one. Yeah. Because it, it talked about the girls going down the stairs to see him mm-hmm. in the basement and some of the news articles. So... But I have seen videos of it where it looks like it's outside entrance. Chief Detective Eugene Ferguson said the odor of a common type of explosive was present in the cellar. How does he know what that is? I don't know. It's so weird. I'm like, who would think it smells like a regular... Nope, nope, nope. This is a rare one. It's a rare explosive. It smells like it's rare. I can tell my nose. I, I got Medium this nose. rare. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, do, do explosives smell different? I mean, and have you smelled so many of them, you know the difference? Yeah, I mean, like there are lots of bombings in Portland at that time. <laughs> not that I'm aware of, but maybe he was in the war and he had was around a lot of them. I'm not maybe. sure. That, that That's my best guess, is he was in the war, he smelled this stuff before, but, <laughs> yeah, it was, it's like... Like, I work with him every Friday night in the basement, too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I have all my, I sniff them every day to make sure I know what, which one each smells like, just just in case this happened, and it happened. So excited. <laughs> I could have used this experience. Preparing <laughs> for this my whole life. <laughs> As a bomb-sniffing detective. <laughs> You've heard of the bomb-sniffing dogs. Yeah, I can't be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, upon, event- upon interviewing the daughters, police learned that the box or suitcase, or however it was described, that their father kept in the basement and had warned the family not to touch. The police learned of the box, sorry. The police located Bowden on the Oregon coast where he owned a boat that he and his two brothers worked on on the weekends. So he was up in, I believe it said Newport in one news article working on his boat. I was just in Newport this weekend. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> it's a nice place. It Good place really to run nice. off to when you blow up your wife. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Better than being there. <laughs> yeah. Um... And, you know, a lot of people, it sounded suspicious in some of the news articles because it sounded like he left for the weekend to go do this. Mm -hmm. But then I was reading other ones where it said he had left the house two weeks prior. So Mm -hmm. it's not like he planned to blow her up that evening. Yeah. Uh, When James was informed of Fern's death, he was reported to have moaned, she must have got curious and opened the trunk. (laughs) I was afraid of that, but I didn't know what to do about it. End quote. (laughs) I was like, oh, well, she's dead. <laughs> yeah, it's like you were afraid 
she might blow up, but you didn't think to tell her, hey, you're going to yeah. blow up if you open this box. Uh-huh. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I think you just didn't want to go into the cop and say, my husband built a bomb in the basement. Yeah, especially during the divorce, but... <laughs> yeah, you're definitely going to lose the kids if you build a bomb in the basement, I'm just going to say. Uh, so by Sunday morning, James was arrested on illegal possession of ex- explosives. James denied owning any explosives or having any knowledge of how his wife was killed. This is a day after he said he was afraid she would do something that would kill her. <laughs> um, so we're going to rewind now back to June 15th, 1946, when James made his plan for the man he thought was stepping out with his wife. Ooh, is that who the box was for? Um, yeah, he had a plan for that. <laughs> Uh, James bought six sticks of dynamite from a Clackamas County contractor. Six sticks of dynamite that he said he didn't own. Oh, so it was a contractor that he bought it from, and he just kind of, like, told on him afterwards? Yeah, it was a friend of his, and the police went to the contractor and said, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was more of a sketchy deal. Like, I didn't know it was an actual contractor. I thought it was some guy in the black market. No, it was an actual contractor, and I don't know if any charges were brought against him. Yeah. Because you'd think there were, because... You, yeah. you aren't supposed to sell dynamite to people. Um, that, yeah. You should probably ask them, like, hey, you don't have any dirt or land around you. You live in the middle of Portland. What are you going to do <laughs> with this? What do you need with dynamite? <laughs> yeah, you live in the middle of nowhere. You use dynamite to make roads or, you know, tear down mountains. Mm-hmm. But in Portland, you don't really need it for your backyard renovations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Must not have been as, reg- as regulated back then with the dynamite. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it really was. <laughs> this could be why. <laughs> with this he built his Pandora box which was like I said a footlocker or suitcase something sometimes described as a box which that when the lid was open it would explode this was locked with a combination lock that only James and Fern knew the combination to so was it really for the lover <laughs> that's my question I'm like how is he going to open this if he doesn't know the combination you're going to leave a little note that says <laughs> This is the combo. There's a secret prize inside. It's also our cell phone. I mean, our uh, credit card pin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you open it, my debit card's inside, and you'll be able to use it. So open it. (laughs) Yeah, that's what gets me. It's like, um, if she knew the combination to it, and you knew the combination to it, no one else did, that kind of tells me who it was for. Why would the guy even open, like, why would the lover even see a box and just open it, you know, like? Yeah, I, I guess if you mail it to him and they think it's something else. Yeah. Um, once he had built his box, had it all set up, James hit a snag. He couldn't figure out how to get it out of his basement and to the man. So he just left it. Mm-hmm. Well, he could have been planning on taking the lock off. And then giving it to the guy. That way his daughters don't open it by accident. But if his wife opens it by accident, it's oh well. It's oh well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be that he was trying, trying to figure out a way to get the combination off. Or, but he, he couldn't get it moved because he didn't know if it would go off if he moved it. So he didn't really want to move it. Mm-hmm. But a few days after he had built this bomb, which Fern filed, Fern filed for divorce. And James said there was no point... And taking revenge because at that point he had pretty much lost her. But he had to know something about bomb making because he got the dynamite on June 15th and by June 20th the bomb was built. Five days. Five days? Five days he built a bomb. (laughs) 
He must have learned that in Alaska or something. <laughs> That's what I, in his military training or something, uh-huh. yeah, because that was a quick bomb if he was done building it by the time she filed for divorce. You can't just Google that either. <laughs> Back in that day. Nope, you had to go to the library and check out books and have the librarian look at you suspiciously. Yeah. And... <laughs> Report you to the police casually. <laughs> Well, back then it was, uh, don't, don't ask, don't tell, you know, just, mm. I'm gonna look the other way, this is not my business, mm-hmm. I got my own stuff I'm dealing with. <laughs> Can't deal with your bomb right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was quoted in reports as to having said he was afraid of it after he built it. That's one of the reasons he didn't move it. He but he was... put it all together. He, yeah. like, wired it, he did everything. <laughs> and then he, he was scared of it, and yeah. all of a sudden it turned on him, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, through questioning with police, James was unable to explain why he did not just disconnect the bomb, other than he was scared of it, once he determined he didn't want to use it. So that, to me, is, like, kind of fishy. If you, you knew how to put it together, you kind of mm-hmm. should know how to take it apart. Yeah, just cut a wire or two. <laughs> Go check out the other library book about how to defuse a bomb <laughs> and take care of it. <laughs> <sighs> that way the librarian can sleep at night. <laughs> yes. Like, well, he built it and then he diffused it. We're, go- we're okay. Yeah, it evens out. <laughs> <laughs> no one should be hurt now. <laughs> so his trial started on December 17th, 1946. So shortly after. They, they kind of moved through this pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, it said that the trial lasted like day and night because the judge wanted to get it over with before Christmas so they didn't have to deal with it, which... Sounds rushed. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, he did it, but he, he still deserves a fair trial, not a speedy trial, because you want to go home and have Christmas goose, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in court, Bowden's defense was rooted in the fact that he claimed Fern was never his intended victim. But he did have an intended victim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to murder someone. It was just the wrong person. Guys. Yeah, I it's killed okay. the wrong person. <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> Well, the the fact that I have the thing I have issues with that is she's the only other person that knew how to open the box. Mm-hmm. You just so, left it there. Teasing yeah, the diary. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like she's the person you intended it for didn't know how to open it, mm-hmm. but she did. So I'm thinking she was really your intended, even it was if it was subconscious. Mm-hmm. He wanted her gone. Uh, the reason he was driven to making his Pandora box, he stated was that he was driven to the brink of desperation by the breaking up of his family. Which I can see that, but go to counseling. Mm-hmm. Don't build a bomb. Yeah. There Never are other choice. ways to handle that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not a good choice. Uh, prosecution's case was based on the fact that he used dynamite. It kind of proved that he had murderous intent. You don't mm-hmm. use dynamite if you just want to hurt somebody or cause some pain. You, you mm-hmm. want to murder them. Yeah. Six sticks of it, too. That'll, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure they're good and gone. I'm going to use six. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and then it was also the fact that he had put that diary in there and told her about it. They think they kind of in, thought that he had enticed her into opening it, saying, don't mm-hmm. touch it. There's a diary in there about you, but don't touch it. <laughs> Did so they I, ever find the diary afterwards? I, I think it was kind of blown to smithereens. Was it actually in there, though? Yeah, I think it was. There might have been some pages, because they had said that it was him tracking her and following her. Hmm. So I don't know if that's what he told them or what they found. That's very creepy. And then to murder someone right after that. Like, you have to intend to Yeah. 
Yeah, it sounds like he was trying to cover his tracks, too, by putting it in there so that it would disintegrate mm-hmm. with... Yeah. Yeah, that does sound like that. <laughs> the interesting things is that his daughters actually testified in his defense. But How old were they? They like... were 13 and 15, I think, were their ages. Or 13 and 17. Yeah, 13 and 17. So... They were old enough to, like, think to know. Thing. yeah. But I think that kind of hurt him in the long run because they did keep stating that he had kept warning the family not to touch the box. And they were meaning (laughs) it as, he didn't mean to kill her, he told her not to do it, and she just did it, so it's her fault. Yeah. But the prosecution used that as, he was trying to pique her curiosity and, Mm -hmm. you know. And she kept the kids in the divorce, so it's kind of weird that they're taking his side instead of her side. Yeah, I don't know what the family dynamic was like in that, but. Maybe they wanted to stay with their father or something. Especially after their mom is now dead, they need, they wanted a caretaker. They didn't just want to be orphans, so they were defending him. Yeah, they wanted someone they knew. I can see that. Trying to keep their family together as best as possible mm-hmm. in their grief. Yeah. That could definitely be the case. Uh, so the jury deliberated for five hours. <clears throat> and on December 22nd, they returned a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder and recommended a life sentence. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I think that was probably the best. That was probably appropriate for the situation. Yeah, I kind of agree with that sentencing. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I do, but this this time I definitely do. So they took a break for Christmas, and on December 27th, James W. Bonin was sentenced to life in prison. And Bonin at this time was 49, and he claimed he was a victim of a chain of circumstances. <laughs> That he created. Yeah. <laughs> Your paranoia led you to this, and then you chose uh-huh. to build a bomb instead of going to family counseling. <clears throat> it was premeditated. It was. <laughs> yeah, you, you thought this. You had time to think this through, and you didn't think it through the right way. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. He resided in Oregon State Penitentiary until August. Late August, early September 1954, mm-hmm. when he was sent to the Oregon State Hospital, which is actually just down the road from me, <laughs> uh, for tubo- tuberculosis treatment. The penitentiary, is that the one, like, on the outskirts of Salem? Right? Yeah, over on Gaffin Road, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was close to us, too. <laughs> yellow building? Is that what it is? I, I think it's yellow. I haven't looked at it lately. Yeah. I kind of ignore it when I drive by. I'm just kind of like, oh, there's some really bad people over there. Yeah, we know about some of them. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of them. Yeah. <laughs> They're still in there. Um, so about four weeks later, after being sent to the Oregon State Hospital, on September 26, 1954, James Bowden passed away at the age of 57. So he wasn't in prison very long, was he? No, he was in, he was in I think, eight years. If my math is correct. That's not very long. Almost eight years, not quite, yeah. So, he had some underlying medical conditions, I think, going in and then going into prison. Just kind of exasperated it. Mm -hmm. So, he died from complications from pneumonia. Not pneumonia. Tuberculosis. (laughs) They're both diseases of the lung. Yeah, I couldn't (laughs) tell you the difference myself. (laughs) Um, Tuberculosis, I think, has something to do with your lungs, like, disintegrating and you start drowning in your own blood. Oh. Yeah. That doesn't sound good. It's, it's, it doesn't sound very fun. It's it's the one, like, in all the westerns where they start coughing and they cough up blood. Mm-hmm. I know it was big in 
back in the day. Yeah. Tuberculosis, everybody had it. Yeah, everybody had tuberculosis. Um, but it seems like his daughter still kind of forgave him. They, they petitioned for a war memorial to be put up on his grave, mm-hmm. uh, for his time served in World War One and Two. Oh, was that both wars? Yeah, he served in, but, well, he didn't serve in a military capacity in World War Two, but he did serve. I thought the gravestone was just for World War One. I. I think it was, mostly. He only did three months then. <laughs> I know! He only served just a couple months, and yeah. he gets a thing, and he murdered his wife, and he gets... <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, I-, I understand the need to be close to a parent, but mm, <laughs> there's something called a toxic relationship uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that I wonder, you know, but I think Doris and Shirley are still alive. They'd be in like their 80s now. Um, I couldn't find much information on them other than, um, I think it was Doris got married. Um, and I can't remember the gentleman's name right now, but it was shortly after her father was, sent, was uh, passed away. Hmm. So, because she wrote on there her father's name and that he was deceased. So, on the marriage certificate. Yeah. So that is the story of the Pandora Box murder that took place in Portland, Oregon, in nineteen forty-six, I believe. <laughs> I said it enough; you think I'd remember the date? Yeah, nineteen forty-six. So that's a crazy one. Yeah, and I I was surprised that I'd never heard about it. Uh huh. Like. I've never seen one a true crime podcast about that. Yeah, and it's like, it's super bizarre. I mean, who built a box in their basement mm-hmm. that's rigged to blow up to murder someone you think is sleeping with your wife? <laughs> I mean, it, it's a little out there, and like, you went from point A to point Z. Yeah. You skipped a whole bunch of steps. <laughs> but I think it was because at the time it was the end of World War Two. they were testing atom bombs, they were... Mm-hmm. Like, there was the bikini bombs going on where they were doing a lot of nuclear testing. So that was in the papers really prevalent. Since he wasn't in the front lines, too, he was probably working more closely with those bombs. Yeah, he could have been up in Alaska Mm -hmm. working on that stuff. That makes sense, bringing things to blow up if the Japanese showed up. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why he was able to do it in five days. That just just seems insane to me. Yeah. That he could build it in five days. That's a pretty isolated state, though, so they probably did a lot of testing up there, I yeah. would imagine. My only thinking is is if he lied, because, you know, he said that he quit building it once she divorced, said she, she filed for divorce, mm-hmm. but maybe he didn't quit building it, and that's when he finished building it, mm-hmm. and then said, eh, well, it's done, but I'm not going to use it, but really, he wanted to use it on her at that point and mm-hmm. switch victims. So, I don't know. That could be the deal, too. So, mm-hmm. Like, don't piss me off. I have a bomb that's almost made in the basement. <laughs> Do you know what I'm building in the basement? Do you know? Can you just wash the dishes and stop arguing with me? I, I feel like you wanted to use that so bad, you know? <laughs> I'm taking the car tonight. Don't argue with me, because... There's something downstairs for you. You don't know it yet. But don't make me use it. I just think it's it's totally dumb luck that his daughters weren't in the house when she did that. Yeah. I, I feel like in the back of her mind, she had to have known it was something dangerous, and that's why she waited for the kids mm-hmm. to be gone. That's why she had them get out of the house beforehand. 
Yeah, because that, that would have been horrible to have the daughters be caught in the cross. I mean, it's horrible that she died, mm-hmm. but to have the daughters caught in that, too, would be have yeah. been just devastating. And I he think. risked his daughter's life. He did. And then they defended him in court. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> did you not think about that? If you had been in the house, you would be dead, too. And he obviously didn't care. Yeah. He didn't take them on the fishing trip. <laughs> yeah, he didn't take them when he left the house. He didn't fight for them to leave. I mean, other than denying the claims of his wife uh-huh. and trying to get her to get a little less al- uh, child support. Oh, I get us. Oh, I'm super tired today. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, it, it, I just, I don't, I guess I don't understand that mentality, but I don't also know their family dynamics, so maybe mom was hard on them or, mm-hmm. you know, you never know how that all Dad was out. a cool parent, but. Yeah. <laughs> Dad lets me eat ice cream for breakfast. Why don't you, mom? <clears throat> Yeah, we have that problem sometimes. <laughs> Dad always gets to be the cool guy. Uh-huh. Mom gets to be the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. But Dad would kind of be the bad guy if he blew up Mom, in my oh, opinion. So. <laughs> He'd switch real quick. <laughs> but, alright, well, we will be back next week with a new episode that, uh, What's that about? That one takes place in 1912, and it is a kind of taking us back to the old westerns. So that's all I'm going to give yeah, you. that's far back. Yeah. So this one I didn't find any court, court documents on either because yeah. it was so far back, but... Was it in Oregon, though? It was in Oregon. And I've never heard of this one either, so. <laughs> There's a lot of them in doing this research, so I'm like, how did I never hear about this? What? Really? Okay. Oh, all right. And then there's some that I'm, like, researching them, and then I come across another one that I'm like, oh, like, I was researching the one for next week, and I came across this article about this guy that um, went to prison and got the death sentence, and then his lawyer argued that because he only killed women, he wasn't a threat to anybody so he should just go to jail. Because <laughs> he wouldn't kill anybody in jail because there's no women there. He only kills women. Yeah. I'm like, that's not that a great... No sense. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> as long as we don't send him to women's jail. Then you can go to Keep jail for life. from the women. <laughs> it, was just, it was just the weirdest thing. I'm like, that's not really a great argument against the death penalty. <laughs> Is next week's episode about that Michael Jordan guy? No. <laughs> it is not about Michael Jordan. <laughs> no, and he doesn't even take place in this one. He's like, we're in a totally different county, different town. Hmm. And actually, um, the story is about someone related to the founder of the town. So, nice. it is not Michael Jordan. Yeah, they're all Michael Jordan. <laughs> Everybody back in Eastern Oregon is named Michael Jordan. <laughs> None of them are tall, though. <laughs> or play basketball. <laughs> but that is it for this week's episode, and we hope that you tune in next week. 